All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 24. This is the final in our series on all of this. And uh, there is one more meal that we have here, but the, we're not really going to focus on the meal itself. Um, it's not incidental, but neither is it sort of where I'm going to focus my attention. Let's pick up in verse 13, and we'll re- I'll read through 27. On that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some men of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father, this morning, help me to speak the truth openly. We ask that you would remove the veil from the eyes of those who do not believe that they might see the light of the gospel as we proclaim Christ the Lord risen for them. 
For you who said, let light shine out of the darkness can shine light in our hearts so that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is only in your light that we can see the light. And so grant that to us in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a painting from a 16th century Spaniard by the name of Diego Vasquez. It's called The Kitchen Maid with the Emmaus Supper. So it's not the Emmaus Supper, but it's about an African woman who was a slave beholding the supper with amazement. She's actually looking at the remnants of the supper. And behind her, and you can see through an opening and see one of the disciples there. Something has dawned upon her, and she now grasps this idea of Christ resurrected. But there's something that will, about this picture, this painting, that reflects, I think, our culture's desire to have hope without a resurrected Jesus. You see, it's, it's not a new thing that we try to squeeze Jesus out of Easter with bunnies and chocolates and all of that kind of stuff. And I, there's nothing wrong if you gave your kid chocolate today. It's okay. It's all right. Uh, the Easter bunny may be a different story. I don't know. But uh, just as you know, we want to keep Christ in Christmas, there's a sense in which we must keep Christ in Easter. Otherwise, it loses its meaning and becomes actually meaningless and hopeless. The big idea this morning is that the risen Christ makes broken hearts burn. We see that Jesus comes to a world of broken dreams and therefore broken hearts. We see it right here in this story of these two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus, which we haven't actually pinpointed the precise village that it happens to be, but it was about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they leave in the morning with these rumors of Jesus rising again, but they're sad because they don't believe He has risen again. They're, they're leaving the center of all of their hopes and dreams represented by Jerusalem and they're going back home Broken-hearted, saddened, disheartened, hopeless. Luke makes clear that they're spending their time talking along the road as they walk along the road. Uh, this is not a Deuteronomy 6 kind of talking uh, where they're instructing one another, but they're sort of lamenting what's been going on. These, this idea of talking and discussing can be a, can include the idea of arguing and disputing. So it's possible that they may have disagreed a little bit about what had happened that morning and the news that they had received from the women. We don't know. But they know, we know this, they were preoccupied with it enough that it, it, it took up their conversation for the seven mile journey Remember? Walking. 
the seven-mile journey or a couple of hours that it took to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I learned something about my couple-of-hour journey back from Phoenix on Monday night with Charles Garland. I learned that Charles likes to talk about things that he's not sure about. And so we spent two hours debating gun control and health insurance. (laughs) And there were moments that got a little loud in that car. And that's okay, because we're friends. And so I imagine that while they weren't in a car careening down the highway from Phoenix, it might have gotten a little loud amongst these two people on the road. And here comes Jesus. But we recognize that the Scriptures declare that their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. So Jesus is there, This is, but they don't realize it's Jesus. And so now let's pause for a second. Some people say that the disciples continually had hallucinations of Jesus. Okay? That He didn't really rise again, but these were hallucinations, mass hallucinations. That makes no sense of this passage because they didn't initially think they saw Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, Jesus, hey, how's it going? Why don't you tell us about this? They think it's just an ordinary person. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. There's something going on. They're not foolish. They're not stupid. It's not that their eyes have too many tears because of they're sad. But they were kept from recognizing Him. And so the question should become, who kept them from recognizing Jesus? On the one hand, we might be tempted to say, Satan. Not because we're the church lady but because of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers. And so there's a theoretical possibility that it was Satan. I don't think it was Satan. I think it was, in fact, God. Why would I say something like that? Because I believe God is sovereign over sight. It's not judicial here, as it is in the case of unbelievers who are not able to see the, the gospel in Jesus Christ, but this is more similar to what we see with that story that we heard from Second Kings, with Elisha and the Syrians, where the servant comes out, he sees the, this large contingent of the Syrian army, and he's afraid, and Elisha says to him, what are you worried about? Those who are on our side are far greater than those on their side, to which the servant goes, basically, what you talking about, Willis? Have you lost your mind? Can't you see? All of these chariots. And it is then that Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. Because there was a spiritual army of, of far greater strength that surrounded Elijah and protected him as God's prophet that the servant couldn't see. Because they were spiritually discerned. But the story, of course, goes on because then Elijah says, Lord, make those who see unable to see. <laughs> and so the, the Syrian army ends up being blinded temporarily so that they can be led into captivity back in Samaria. 
To which, once again, Elisha prays, and they're able to see. So I think it's God who, for in this moment, has, uh, for a time, blinded the eyes of these people so they did not recognize that the person with them is, in fact, the resurrected Jesus. I'm reminded as well of the, the story of Brother Andrew. As he was smuggling Bibles across a border into a, a communist country, he said, Oh God, who can make blind eyes see, I ask that you make seeing eyes blind. And so these people were able to see, but not able to see. And just as those Bibles went past those border guards unnoticed, so Jesus is here talking with them, but they don't realize who they're really talking to. We see that they're sad when they're asked what in the world they're talking about. And they're sad in part because they viewed Jesus as a prophet and a deliverer much like Moses. They were expecting the great prophet to come. They thought Jesus was the great prophet, and they thought that he would deliver them. They thought he was like Moses because they used these phrases, mighty in deed and word. And we see that again in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, and speaking about Moses. Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. This is a reflection of the description of Moses at his death in Deuteronomy 34. And so they expected someone like Moses. And Moses delivered God's people from Egypt. And so they expected this one like Moses to deliver them from Rome. In other words, they wanted a mighty, physical, geopolitical sort of deliverer. And their hopes were set upon this. And we see that now those hopes have been broken. You see, Jesus was arrested Jesus was condemned, Jesus was crucified, and Jesus was dead and buried. You see, Jesus didn't fit their understanding of a Redeemer. And that's true today for many people. Jesus doesn't fit what many people want or expect in a Redeemer. And so he sort of discarded or or moved to the sides as though he were somehow unimportant or irrelevant. Everyone has dreams broken and therefore hearts broken. The career that didn't pan out like you hoped it would. The health issues that stole away everything that you thought you would be able to do and enjoy the marriage that seems like a curse instead of a blessing. Or perhaps the fact that you can't find someone to marry. Or the one you thought you found didn't want to marry you. We've all experienced these broken sorts of dreams. And there's a sense in which we have wanted to run and hide like Cleopas. That's what he's doing. All the rest of the disciples are back in Jerusalem. He's going home. He's given up. He's sort of like a cat hiding under the couch because it's hurt. Don't you know how you know cats run away and hide when they're hurt? Lick their wounds. They don't go for help. They want to make sure that nothing else gets them. We have a child who runs and hides. 
And we meet people on a daily basis almost that have broken dreams, that have broken hearts, and they are somehow running from the scene of the crime instead of running to the one who can help them. Okay? People continue to seek hope and joy without a risen Christ. Now, there's some that do it out of ignorance, okay? They, they say, or, or they just kind of ignore Jesus. And there are some, of course, who do it consciously and explicitly in, in uh, rejecting Jesus. The interesting thing about that painting that I mentioned by Diego Valesquez is that they went to restore it. And as they went to restore it, what they found is two things that happened. One, someone had changed the margins and put it in a new frame. So there was some extra canvas over here, and they found that someone had also painted over that last strip, that margin strip. And as they restored the painting, what they discovered is Jesus was there. (laughs) Someone had obscured Jesus, I'm not sure why, from that painting of the kitchen maid with the Maya supper. And so it becomes clear that her joy is not just about a meal that she served, but the Jesus that she served and the hope that she had. But this also means that there is someone who wanted to exclude Jesus from that joy by changing the margin and covering him up. And people do that a lot. They try to paint stories of their own lives, but they try to paint a story that doesn't have Jesus or one that has a very small, easy-to-ignore kind of Jesus. Not the Jesus that we see in the Scriptures that people could not avoid. So Jesus came to invite these broken, miserable people to a feast and fellowship. Secondly, Jesus reveals himself as a dying and rising Savior for us, for sinners. They say, they tell Jesus what has happened because he has, you know, feigned ignorance of these matters and wants to know what they think of these things and they have expressed them and they've expressed their their fear and their disillusionment and their misunderstanding of who Jesus is and so his his response is not cheer up little camper but rather oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken That should arrest us for a moment. That should arrest us because he's, the second part of that, all that the prophets have spoken. You should understand this. It's not a mystery, but it's one that God has been revealing for many centuries. Is basically the bottom line. We saw this when we, in our, in our journey through 1st Peter. 
In chapter 1, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so, Peter's whole perspective was that the prophets had prophesied the sufferings and then the glories of Jesus, the Messiah. Where did he get that? From Jesus, the Messiah. (laughs) Probably through Cleopas and this other unnamed person who may or may not have been his wife, Mary. Okay. It's in black and white, in other words. It's there for all to see, in other words. They had believed some of the prophet's words because they were looking for a prophet like Moses. And there was that in the scriptures, but one who was greater than Moses and did something far more profound than Moses. But they missed some of these things. But before we're too hard upon these two people, let us remember the first part of what Jesus says to them. Well, maybe the first part's hard. Foolish ones. (laughs) They're slow of heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a IQ issue. It's, it's, it's not a method of interpretation kind of issue. But this really is slowness of heart. They were slow to believe. They were filled with doubts and fears and did not understand the Scriptures as a result of these doubts and fears. And so I want to remind us, there's two poles. Please don't underestimate the power of self-deception. That, that you can bring things to the text that aren't really there. So that you think the Bible says something it doesn't really say. We also can overestimate our own insight, our own capacity to understand. And and so we don't rely on others for insight and uh, proof checking, shall we say. We are a mixed up, crazy, messed up people. Even as Christians. Last night I had a not so pleasant encounter with a non-Christian. We were at another baseball, well, at this time it was a baseball game. And I had asked the man behind me, Hopefully politely, but I'm not sure if I did it that way. I, I could have fault in here. But, but I reminded him that this was a public place and that there were children about, including the one sitting right next to me, and that uh, the stream of profanities, this is not the place. He was okay with that, it seemed. But the person who was with him was not okay with that. Because you Christians, don't know where she got that from, <laughs> I had said, Hey, I'm a pastor. Hey, I'm a Christian or anything like that. I just talked about public place, my kid. You Christians keep putting your values on us. 
And there was sort of the self-deception of not seeing that she was trying to put her values on us. Now, that was the interesting thing. It made no sense to me whatsoever because she said that this manner of speaking was who she was, yet she never used profanity. You'd think she would have cussed me out, (laughs) but she didn't. She just ranted about how she was not going to let this happen. It didn't go well. That's the kind of self-deception that we often, you know, that people can experience and be under the, the bondage of. That they can't even see how what they're saying makes no sense whatsoever and, and what they read makes no sense whatsoever. I also interacted with someone else who was a um, liberal female pastor who seems to think that Christianity is some form of universalism. Where do you get that one? I gotta make sure I'm understanding the scriptures right. And she needs to make sure she's understanding the scriptures right. But based on the fact that so few have understood them the way she does, I think I'm okay. Alright? I don't want to introduce skepticism into your heart. The basic issue for them is that they did not grasp the necessity of the Messiah's suffering before he could enter into glory. And Jesus uses that very word. Okay? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? It was not even on their radar that the Messiah would suffer. And yet it was clearly within the Old Testament. It was not just a thing that might happen. It was necessary for our salvation that the Messiah would have to suffer before He could enter glory and we follow holding on to His train. And so Jesus began with Moses. So it begins with Genesis. Okay, and interprets to them in all the scriptures the things spoken concerning him. Now, this does not mean that every single verse spoke of Jesus, but every book certainly did. And there was much that was there. For instance, we see Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered as to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. Meaning, and according to what the Scriptures had taught. Because remember, when Paul writes this, there's no New Testament. So he's speaking of the Old Testament. The Old Testament Scriptures had taught that Christ must die for our sins, and that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul surely believes that these two things were taught in the Old Testament. He continues uh, again later on in his ministry to Timothy in chapter 3 of his second letter to him, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from what you learned, uh, from whom you learned it, and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures that made Timothy wise for salvation were the Old Testament. 
And so we see the coherence of Scripture as Jesus then instructs these men about these things that Paul talks about to the Corinthians as well as to Timothy. There were prophecies of a coming Messiah who must suffer. Chapters like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And at the end of 53, you have his subsequent glory because he is satisfied in his soul over his children after he has suffered. And so we see the prophecies uh, in more places about these things. We have promises that are given. Sim- very similar to prophecies. But, you know, there's going to be a Redeemer that's coming. Promises given in covenant to people like Abraham, that there's going to be a seed that will, who will be the blessing of the nations. We see it in types. People like Joseph and people like David who suffered before they were exalted and saved nations. Jesus is the greater Joseph, the greater David, who suffered more profoundly than Joseph and David, and whose deliverance was far greater than Joseph's and David's. But they are types that point to this coming one. They're shadows that we see within the Old Testament law, particularly the, the, the law for worship, the Passover lamb, speaks of a suffering Messiah. The day of atonement speaks of an atonement for sin that will take place in the future that will make all the rest of the sacrifices meaningless and irrelevant because it is the sacrifice to which they point. So all of these things, these prophecies, these promises, these types, these shadows, all are of Messiah, and they fill the Scriptures from beginning to end. And so this is not an obscure sort of thing that Jesus is talking about. I'm sure He gave them the cliff notes, otherwise they would have been there for days. Okay? He did this before revealing Himself to them. He opens up the Scriptures so that when they see Him and understand who He is, they'll have correct understanding of who He is. He's not a ghost. He's not a phantom. He's not a figment of their imagination. But He is the the suffering Savior who was raised again on the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Before they can experience His risenness, they must have a correct understanding of of His risenness. And so there are times in which we don't simply argue experiences with people. We must bring them to the Scriptures so they can see what God says about these experiences. And then they have the meal because they prevailed upon Jesus, not, of course, not knowing who He is. They prevail upon Him to stop with Him because, with them because it's getting late and He doesn't want to be on the road to the next village when it gets dark because that's when all the criminals come out. And so while they're at table breaking bread, something interesting happens because Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, and breaks it. He's the guest. That's what the host is supposed to do. <laughs> but Jesus somehow does this, and, and we're not sure why, if there's some connection with the bread, because as far as we know, they weren't at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper the Passover celebration. It was the twelve. It wasn't the twelve and Cleopas and Mary and whoever the second person was, the unnamed second person. So they weren't there. So it wasn't as though they suddenly had a flashback to the Last Supper and said, it's Jesus. 
We're not sure exactly what it is, but we do know that their eyes were opened. And they recognized Him. The God who said, let there be light, as we see in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, shined His light so that they could finally see the face of Jesus and behold the reality of the Gospel. And so people do need truth, and they also need the experience of God shedding that light in their eyes, in their face, in their heart, so that they can behold Jesus as He really is. And so we should be opening the Word for them, recognizing that God must then open their eyes and shine light into their hearts. And so Jesus brings us the Word to show that it was necessary for Him to die and to rise for us and for our salvation. Thirdly, burning hearts bring Jesus to broken hearts. You see, they recognize who He is, and instead of there being what they would have hoped for, which would have been a great love fest, you know, hugs, tears of joy, jumping up and down with excitement. That's what I, you know, imagine someone you loved is now alive and in your presence, and you'd be very happy. Gone. So they couldn't cling to Him. Jesus vanishes, and it all kind of comes together for them, the truth and the experience in the form, I think, of regeneration, because they have moved from being slow of heart, according to the testimony of Jesus, to now saying, did not our hearts burn within us when He was teaching them the Scriptures? They now recognize that something was going on inside when this happened. Something that's very similar to what John Wesley described in his Aldersgate experience where he was at this uh, Moravian meeting and they started to read the um, introduction to uh, Luther's commentary on Romans. And he talks about his heart being strangely warmed. I think of Charles Spurgeon. Oddly enough, he recounts in one place how he went to Brussels. And Brussels was a Roman Catholic country. And so he finds himself in a Roman Catholic church, but the pastor, that the priest that Sunday, happened to be preaching a very gospel-oriented sermon. And, and while there were many things that, that Spurgeon disagreed with, he found the core about the excellency of Jesus Christ to be profound, and his heart was swarmed because he heard truth, and his heart was responding to truth, and he was rejoicing. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones, who talks about logic on fire. When he described it, in the, that, uh, there's a sequence in the documentary on him where he kind of describes this. It's like, that's what it's like to preach. Where suddenly the, the, the logic you're declaring, just you experience the truthfulness of it and you just get excited. So these people were excited about the truth. They were so excited that they ignored their own warning. (laughs) And they ran back to Jerusalem. They went back the seven miles, risking the darkness that would come and the thieves that come out at night. They went back because they had something better in mind. Have you ever walked long distances in the dark? 
I have on a couple of different occasions. One, uh, a project I was working on when I was in college went too late, and so here I am walking the streets of Boston uh, in the dark uh, because the tea wasn't running anymore. So I had to walk from campus to my brownstone, and it, it had to have been four or five miles. So it was a rather long, dark walk, kind of going, I hope I'm all right. <laughs> Lord be with me. Another time I remember I was with a friend and we had stopped at another friend's apartment on the, down in the center of town and not so good of a neighborhood. And um, it got a little too late and he fell asleep on their couch. And so I had a choice. Do I fall asleep on the, on the recliner or do I walk home? I walked home. <laughs> Probably not the best thing to do that time of night, but I walked the four miles or so. That's what these people do. Not because they're afraid but because they have something so important to tell the other disciples that it can't wait till morning. And so they hoof it back to Jerusalem in the darkness of night. You only do that for something that really matters. Last night we were in our seats at the game and I realized, did I lock the van That sort of matters, but not enough for me to go back to the van. <laughs> the Lord can protect the van without it being locked. It's got to be okay. And if I lose my iPod, it's not the end of the universe, although I'll probably cry. Um, but a, a risen Jesus is life-changing and life-centering. That Jesus is worth leaving the safety of your home and making the trek to Jerusalem to tell others. They returned to the place of their disappointment to tell the friends they believe are still brokenhearted because their friends couldn't text them what had happened since they left. Right? They were worried about Peter's... Uh, sorry, the, the disciples that they meet there in Jerusalem are actually excited now because of Peter's encounter with Jesus. And now they hear about Cleopas's encounter with Jesus upon the road, and they're even more excited, so you have a room full of excited people. Okay? These very frightened, very heartbroken people have, been, have transitioned to those who are now about to engage the world. But here's what I want us to be, I want to be very clear about. It's not just that, that Jesus met them in their broken dreams and made their broken dreams came, come true. Jesus gave them new dreams, better dreams, more significant dreams, better hopes, better promises. Things that they, were, they thought were worth dying for. And all but one of them would die for them. Which is the reason why Chuck Colson believed in the resurrection. He had been part of the Watergate cover-up and he knew that they couldn't keep that secret for a couple of days. If this was all a lie, there's no way in the world these disciples could have kept this secret. Especially when they start dying for it. We have different dreams now. 
they would take the message of the risen Christ to people who had broken hopes and broken dreams and broken hearts. Tim Chester notes that the sign that the resurrection is at work in people's lives is this. They understand what the Bible teaches about the cross and they want to tell others. They've had an encounter with the truth through the Scriptures that they want to tell other people about. And so, brothers and sisters, these broken hopes and dreams, these broken hearts should represent to us gospel opportunities. That those are people who need a new hope, a better hope, the one that we have in Christ who suffered and died for us according to the Scriptures. A solid hope. And so as we, as we encounter people in these, these uh, societal dialogues, maybe we should stop talking about guns. Whether we're you know, for them or against them and all of that jazz and start talking more about Jesus. Doesn't mean you can't have political decision, uh, opinions and, and share them, but I'm just saying, what's the more important thing? Why, why do people need guns? Because they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the people around them are sinners. What's the real solution to that? We need to talk more about Christ. Bring him to bear on the issues that have captured the hearts of the people we know. So, the kitchen maid with the Emmaus Supper has been restored. There you see the reason for her shock and amazement, the risen Christ. He's back in his rightful place in the painting. Her eyes were open too, and she now looks at the stuff that I served Jesus, not simply a stranger. How much better than those who entertained angels without their realizing it. But, is he in the rightful place in your life? Is he at the center like a risen Savior should be? Or is he just kind of on the periphery of life as you kind of continue to live out your own dreams and your own desires? But know this, his death shows us that our dreams and desires only lead to death. But also know this, his resurrection shows that Jesus gives new dreams and desires that flow from the life that he gives us. So don't settle for those old things. They were broken for a reason. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the death and resurrection of Jesus was not a mistake. That it was not unimportant. but that rather it's really the center of all things that you talk about in terms of your plan of redemption for fallen people like us. That without this Jesus, without this death of Jesus, without this rising of Jesus, there's no hope of salvation. And it doesn't matter whether or not we get married. It doesn't matter whether or not we have a great job. All of that stuff doesn't matter. 
ultimately because it's just going to fall apart anyway. But with Jesus, all that matters. But for reasons that are different. And so, teach us that. Help us to see that. Open our eyes. That we can, we can see how you're at work in our hearts and the hearts of others. Open our eyes to see the opportunities for the gospel that are before us. Give us burning hearts that can't stop talking about what really matters. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.